The Denial of Death, written by Ernest Becker almost around 50 years ago, has been in conversation ever since its publication. It's a huge work, massive work, and gets a lot of appreciation from everybody. What is the book about? The book is basically about the human nature, the philosophy and psychology of it, and uh, how do we perceive death. And the premise is that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our own mortality, which in turns you can say, acts as an emotional and intellectual response to a basic survival mechanism. In other words, how we as individuals or collective as society function and organize ourselves because of this one phenomenon that we know we are going to die and our emotional and psychological response is that no, 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 probably we are not. So it's the battle against uh, the idea, the idea of death. So that's why the title of the book, The Denial of Death, but it is just not about uh, one person's mortality. It's It's more like a Freudian or Jungian perspective, the the idea of the collective and how does that impact the society. It's a much larger work in that sense. So I'm going to read a, a few passages from this book right from the beginning so that you get a taste of what really the book is about. Let's start. In times such as ours, There is a great pressure to come up with concepts that help men understand their dilemma. There is an urge toward vital ideas, toward a simplification of needless intellectual complexity. Sometimes this makes for big lies that resolve tensions and make it easy for actions to move forward with just the rationalizations that people need. But it also makes for the slow disengagement of truths that help men get a grip on what is happening to them, that tell them where the problems really are. One such vital truth that has long been known is the idea of heroism. But in normal scholarly times, we never thought of making much out of it, of parading it or of using it as a central concept. Yet, the popular mind always knew how important it was. As William James, who covered just about everything, remarked at the turn of the century, mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be essentially a theatre for heroism. Not only the popular mind knew, but philosophers of all ages and in our culture, especially Emerson and Nietzsche, which is why we still thrill to them. We like to be reminded that our central calling, our main task on this planet is the heroic. 
one way of looking at the whole development of social science since Marx and of psychology since Freud is that it represents a massive detailing and clarification of the problem of human heroism. This perspective sets the tone for the seriousness of our discussion. We now have the scientific underpinning for a true understanding of the nature of heroism and its place in human life. If mankind's common instinct for reality is right, we have achieved the remarkable feat of exposing that reality in a scientific way. One of the key concepts for understanding man's urge to heroism is the idea of narcissism. As Eric Fromm has so well reminded us, this idea is one of Freud's great and lasting contributions. Freud discovered that each of us repeats the tragedy of the mythical Greek Narcissus. We are hopelessly absorbed with ourselves. If we care about anyone, it is usually ourselves first of all. As Aristotle somewhere put it, luck is when the guy next to you gets hit with the arrow. 2500 years of history have not changed man's basic narcissism. Most of the time, for most of us, this is still a workable definition of luck. It is one of the meaner aspects of narcissism that we feel that practically everyone is expendable except ourselves. We should feel prepared, as Emerson once put it, to recreate the whole world out of ourselves even if no one else existed. The thought frightens us. We don't know how we could do it without others, yet at bottom the basic resource is there. We could suffice alone if need be, if we could trust ourselves as Emerson wanted. And if we don't feel this trust emotionally, still most of us would struggle to survive with all our powers no matter how many around us died. Our organism is ready to fill the world all alone even if our mind shrinks at the thought. This narcissism is what keeps men marching into point-blank fire in wars. At heart, one does not feel that he will die, he only feels sorry for the man next to him. Freud's explanation for this was that the unconscious does not know death or time. In man's physiochemical inner organic recesses, he feels immortal. None of these observations implies human guile. Man does not seem able to help his selfishness. It seems to come from his animal nature. Through countless ages of evolution, the organism has had to protect its own integrity. It had its own physiochemical identity and was dedicated to preserving it. This is one of the main problems in organ transplants. The organism protects itself against foreign matter, even if it is a new heart that would keep it alive. The protoplasm itself harbors its own, nurtures itself against the world, against invasions of its integrity. It seems to enjoy its own pulsations expanding into the world and ingesting pieces of it. 
if you took a blind and dumb organism and gave it self-consciousness and a name, if you made it stand out of nature and know consciously that it was unique, then you would have narcissism. In man, physiochemical identity and the sense of power and activity have become conscious. In man, a working level of narcissism is inseparable from self-esteem, from basic sense of self-worth. We have learned mostly from Alfred Adler that what man needs most is to feel secure in his self-esteem. But man is not just a blind glob of idling protoplasm, but a creature with a name who lives in a world of symbols and dreams and not really, not only matter. His sense of self-worth is constituted symbolically. His cherished narcissism feeds on symbols, on an abstract idea of his own worth and idea composed of sounds, words and images in the air, in the mind, on paper. And this means that man's natural yearning for organismic activity, the pleasures of incorporation and expansion can be fed limitlessly in the domain of symbols and so into immortality. The symbol or single organism can expand into dimensions of worlds and times without moving a physical limb. It can take eternity into itself even as it gaspingly dies. In childhood, we see the struggle for self-esteem at its least disguised. The child is unashamed about what he needs and wants most. His whole organism shouts the claims of his natural narcissism. And this claim can make childhood hellish for the adults concerned, especially when there are several children competing at once for the prerogatives of limitless self-extension, what we might call cosmic significance. The term is not meant to be taken lightly because this is where our discussion is leading. We like to speak casually about sibling rivalry as though it was some kind of byproduct of growing up, a bit of competitiveness and selfishness of children who have been spoiled, who haven't yet grown into a generous social nature. But it is too all-absorbing and relentless to be an aberration. It expresses the heart of the creature, the desire to stand out, to be the one in creation. When you combine natural narcissism with the basic need for self-esteem, you create a creature who has to feel himself an object of primary value, first in the universe representing in himself all of life. This is the reason for the daily and usually excruciating struggle with siblings. The child cannot allow himself to be second best or devalued, much less left out. You gave him the biggest piece of candy. You gave him more juice. Here's a little more then. Now she's got more juice than me. You let her light the fire in the fireplace and not me. Okay, you light a piece of paper. But this piece of paper is smaller than the one she lit and so on and so on. An animal who gets his feeling of worth symbolically has to minutely compare himself to those around him to make sure he does not come off second best. 
Sibling rivalry is a critical problem that reflects the basic human condition. It is not that children are vicious, selfish or domineering. It is that they so openly express man's tragic destiny. He must desperately justify himself as an object of primary value in the universe. He must stand out, be a hero, make the biggest possible contribution to world life, show that he counts more than anything or anyone else. When we appreciate how natural it is for man to strive to be a hero, how deeply it goes in his evolutionary and organismic constitution, how openly it shows it as a child, then it is all the more curious how ignorant most of us are consciously of what we really want and need. In our culture anyway, especially in modern times, the heroic seems too big for us or we too small for it. Tell a young man that he is entitled to be a hero and he will blush. We disguise our struggle by piling up figures in a bank book to reflect privately our sense of heroic worth or by having only a little better home in the neighborhood, a bigger car, a brighter children. But underneath throbs the ache of cosmic specialness, no matter how we mask it in concerns of smaller scope. Occasionally, someone admits that he takes his heroism seriously, which gives most of us a chill, as did US Congressman Mendel Rivers, who fed appropriations to the military machine and said he was the most powerful man since Julius Caesar. We may shudder at the crassness of earthly heroism of both Caesar and his imitators, but the fault is not theirs. It is in the way society sets up its hero system and in the people it allows to fulfill its roles. The urge to heroism is natural and to Admit it honest. For everyone to admit it would probably release such pent-up force as to be devastating to societies as they now are. The fact is that this is what society is and always has been. A symbolic action system, a structure of statuses and roles, customs and rules for behavior designed to serve as a vehicle for earthly heroism. Each script is somewhat unique. Each culture has a different hero system. What the anthropologists call cultural relativity is thus really the relativity of hero systems the world over. But each cultural system is a dramatization of earthly heroics. Each system cuts out roles of performances of various degrees of heroism from the high heroism of a Churchill, a Mao or a Buddha to the low heroism of the coal miner, the peasant, the simple priest, the plain everyday earthy heroism wrought by gnarled working hands guiding a family through hunger and disease. It doesn't matter whether the cultural hero system is frankly magical, religious and primitive or secular, scientific and civilized. It is still a mythical hero system in which people serve in order to earn a feeling of primary value, of cosmic specialness, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. They earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature, by building an edifice that reflects human value, 
a temple, a cathedral, a totem pole, a skyscraper, a family that spans three generations. The hope and belief is that the things that man creates in society are of lasting worth and meaning, that they outlive or outshine death and decay, that man and his products count. When Norman O. Brown said that Western society since Newton, no matter how scientific or secular it claims to be, is still as religious as any other, this is what he meant that civilized society is a hopeful belief and protest that science, money and goods make man count for more than any other animal. In this sense, everything that man does is religious and heroic and yet in danger of being fictitious and fallible.